Howells here, the podcast host for this episode, and today we're talking all things conflict resolution. You just need to look around in the headlines to see that many workers are obviously not happy with the way they're treated in the workplace. And so that makes opening a dialogue with employees incredibly, incredibly important. I'm lucky enough to be joined by David Liddle of the TCM Group today. He is a real expert in conflict resolution, having been in the area for decades. So I'm really, really looking forward to getting in to this very divisive subject with him. Stay with us. Oh, thanks, Kieran. It's really great to be here today. So, uh, yeah, my name's David Little. I'm the chief exec and uh, chief consultant in an organisation called the TCM Group, and many of uh, HR Grain, uh, Grapevine listeners and, and readers may know us as an organisation that specialises in the areas of conflict resolution, uh, employee engagement, and more recently, a real focus on uh, culture change and developing transformational cultures in organisations. I set uh, TCM up, I can't believe it now, Karen, it's uh, 22 years ago, uh, in 2001. Uh, We began life very much as a specialist mediation company. Uh, Before I set the business up, I ran a charity specialising in mediation and restorative justice, and and that came after a degree in race and community relations. I brought all of that together into the TCM group. So yeah, for the first 10 years, we were very much going into organisations, providing mediation and conflict resolution services, doing some coaching work and some some training, really great work in some amazing organisations. And I guess you haven't got to do that many times, Kieran, of going into organisations and seeing the distress and the harm and the damage being caused by some of the systems and processes in our workplaces before I started to go in and ask our um, HR teams, leaders and managers, you know, why why are we doing this to our people? Why are we treating them like this? So I started to focus on developing modified HR systems and processes and policies, uh, developing leadership skills and capabilities and developing management capabilities. And moving fast forward now, we do a lot of work supporting um, human resources teams on their transition to become people and culture teams. And we've just uh, set up a a new part of the business called People and Culture, which uh, we set up a website at peopleandculture.com if people are interested in finding out more. And last year, I set up a professional association or a global hub for people, professionals who want to do this stuff better, more person-centric, more values-based, more uh, more person-centered. And that's at peopleprofessionals.org and that's the People and Culture Association. So a lot of focus now on supporting people teams to, to, to shake off the shackles of retribution and transactional HR of the past and embrace a much more modern, progressive, uh, fairer, and more just approach to HR, which uh, is extraordinarily exciting. Fantastic. And so much of what you've just um, mentioned is exactly what we're going to delve into today. Brilliant. So. I'll I'll kick off with my first real question, which is there seems to be a real feeling of dissent in the workplace at the moment. Do you agree with that kind of, you know, that feeling? Um, is it something that's really widespread? And if so, where has that come from? 
Oh my goodness me, Karen. It feels like conflicts and disputes are, are everywhere. <laughs> you know, that yeah. dissent and disagreement. You just have to open any HR magazine or indeed any mainstream press. And there's another story of another organization experiencing conflict, toxic cultures, misogyny, bullying, mm-hmm. discrimination, power abuses. It feels like it is a constant narrative of the way that our organizations are being run. If truth be told, Karen, these issues have always been there. Human beings have always fallen out. We've always disagreed with each other. You know, we've not seen eye to eye. There's always been quarrels. But I think the problems that we're seeing now are are problems that are coming home to roost for a great many organisations. These challenges, I've been predicting them and setting them out and managing them now for 30 or, 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 or more years, Karen. And what I mean by coming home to roost is... let's start with our leaders in our organizations culture climate conflict is treated by many leaders with with disdain uh very reactive approaches to dealing with this stuff i I talk to leadership teams about developing strategic narratives around developing positive workplace cultures and climates and managing conflict effectively Kieran, I've seen seen better strategies for ordering paper clips in most organizations for dealing with this stuff Mm. There is no strategic narrative about how we handle people issues. So in the, in the absence of that, we subcontract these issues out to our managers and say, managers, you deal with this stuff. But I'll tell you what, we're going to put put a blindfold around you. We're going to tie your hands behind your back and put you in a dark room. We don't give them the skills. We don't give them the tools. Mm. We don't give them the, the competencies or the capabilities they need to manage these complex issues. So invariably, they struggle. They they engage in what I call extensive inaction or expensive overreaction. And we see managers who are often caught like a rabbit in the headlights or who will become very harsh and scathing and, 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 and often very, very abusive and in so doing contribute and worsen the situation. So when that fails, we then turn to HR and say, HR, can you come in and fix this for us, please? So HR pull out their policy framework, which is retributive, corrosive, divisive, pernicious, damaging, harmful. It's reductive. It tries to reduce these complex problems to right, wrong, win, lose, uh, uh, often attack and, uh, and defend. So these processes, which could and should be used as a tool to drive dialogue, build trust, create positive engagement actually paradoxically drive a wedge between the parties and they're a tool of escalation and the, the, the tool of, of resolution so ultimately then the problem won't go away this dissent doesn't go away and so it becomes locked into the organization it becomes hard baked in and for many organizations they spend an awful lot of time and money on legal costs and formal investigations and settlement agreements and ndas because there's a failure in our organisations, Kieran, to treat this stuff as a strategic priority and to develop a policy and process framework within our organisations, which brings people together and promotes dialogue and recognises diversity and recognises dissent as an opportunity for growth, what we actually end up doing in our organisations is we we treat it as a risk. And this is coming home to roost. It's The organisations are systematically now coming, uh, experiencing the cost of these failed systems and a failure of our organizations to take this stuff seriously. Yeah. I mean, that, that really, I guess, as you say, it does sound like the culmination of, of lots and lots of different elements there. Um, But one of the things that it, it seems to me is that people are expecting more from their organizations as well. So people have a real, um, strong sense of what 
ethics and well-being expectations and and working structures that work for them and blend you know their their work and home life seamlessly it seems like the expectation on organizations to provide those things and be ethical is stronger now than ever before would you say absolutely i was looking at the edelman trust uh, barometer really interesting if it, if anyone have uh, looked at that you'll see it paints a very clear picture about the nature of trust or distrust in our organizations and according to the Edelman trust barometer 64% of the people have now got to a point where they believe that we're incapable of having constructive and civil debates about issues that people are disagreeing on in our workplace and it talks about ethics and I'll come come to that in a moment so our experience in our own workplaces and as the institutions government body religious institutions and others is that there is a systematic breakdown in, in, in trust between those us and those organizations yet yeah, yet we see following major social justice events you know, the, the murder of george george floyd leading to the black lives matter movement the the conviction of of harvey weinstein the notorious sex offender uh leading to the to, to the me too campaign the casey review recently into the metropolitan police and the identification of of institutionalized racism and misogyny within the organization you know seeing major corporate leadership failures across the press every single day of, of the week and what it's doing is it's it's telling people a this exists and it shines a light on it which of course is a positive thing Kieran it's of course is a positive thing but people are saying this is not acceptable in our modern workplace and people want to speak up and be heard and be and listen but the challenge I see for in organizations in terms of ethics and well-being and having the ability to raise these issues is organizations are not well geared up for our employees speaking truth to power we don't listen effectively. Our systems crush dissent. They destroy relationships. They create a culture of fear in many organisations. So whilst employee activism and social justice are critical features of the employee's expectations of the modern workplace, those are not designed into the employee value proposition in a great many organisations. And it creates a, a significant, significant cultural clash between the workforce and between leaders and, and HR. And the organisations are getting that, are getting this right care and the, or the organizations who are recognizing that in order to be able to address issues around ethics and morals and values and social justice of the organizations who are generating a very powerful discourse and debate within their own organizations about what it means to be a human being in the modern workplace and what are the important aspects of work work is it about shareholder value and profit no it's about social value as, as and stakeholder value and 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 shareholder value so organizations that are getting this right and there are a great many who are mm. are getting this right are having big conversations and big debates now about what it means to be in a modern a modern employee in a modern organization what does what's required of our leaders in terms of the the role that our leaders play what do we need from our people teams and critically how can we create the space for people to be able to talk and speak up and be heard and feel that they'll be treated with dignity and respect when they do so. Those are the organisations that are getting it right. And those, I think, will be the organisations that succeed in the future. Yeah, but, you know, talking of that leadership piece, it was really interesting to see what effect COVID had on the relationship between leaders and their people. Yeah. Because it seemed like the gap between the two shrunk significantly. There was a sense that 
everyone was struggling. Everyone was in the same boat. We were, you know, getting an insight into our leaders' homes through, uh, the, you know, the web chats that we were having. Um, leaders really started to seem to, um, even ones who maybe resisted before the pandemic, seem to really embrace the idea that people can only do as much as they can do and that well-being was incredibly important. But it seems like that has now kind of the pendulum started swinging the other way again. And maybe some of those connections that were forged have started to maybe erode a bit. It, 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 you know, is is that the effect? Is that just a natural effect um, as a result of, you know, the pandemic being behind us? Or do you, do you disagree with that? No, I don't disagree with that. I think it's a really important observation that you've made. You've made, Karen. And I think you know what's at the heart of the, the uh, uh, of what was happening in the pandemic is we trusted our people to do the best job that they could in difficult circumstances. And those organisations, we were all sat at home. We were locked down. The, the old rules and the old systems were didn't 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 work anymore in this new environment we were working in, which was which was very much a virtual environment. We couldn't apply those old sanctions-based disciplinary performance management systems. We had to trust our people. Mm. And actually our people stood up and said, we can be trusted. We come to work to do the best job we can. We want to be the best versions of ourselves. We want to be the most brilliant version of ourselves. And the organizations that I think were successful through through COVID and through lockdowns were really helping their people to be the best versions of themselves during these really difficult periods. And the rule book was put to one side in favour of dialogue, compassion, empathy, engagement, understanding and trust. And what's happened, I think, since COVID is we've got the rule book back out again and it's become much more a centrepiece of the relationship with our workforce. And people are saying, hang on, well, hang on. You trusted me during COVID. You let me be the most brilliant version of me. We weren't engaged in these retributive, adversarial, corrosive processes, disciplinary performance management, absence management capability. All of these really terribly damaging HR systems were not being used. And now we've brought them back in. And, hey, I don't like this. So I'm going to make a very conscious decision to to, to leave. I I was reading some really interesting research from uh, MIT Sloan uh, School who said that over 10 times more people were likely to quit their jobs because of a toxic culture at work than they were because of of, of the the compensation, how much they were paid. 10 times more likely to quit because of a toxic culture. So I think what we are seeing is people are saying, I don't like this. You trusted me. I worked hard. My intentions were good. You're now calling all that into question. And then we start to see this quiet quitting, the great resignation, presenteeism, you know, this this point you made earlier around dissent. These are all byproducts. And again, it doesn't have to be this way. We're choosing to treat people like this. This is not, This is, it doesn't have to be like this. And organisations which are struggling with this are choosing to do it this way. And in some respects, I use the word you know, coming home to roost, Kieran, we 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 reap the benefits of this of the seeds that we sow, uh, and we're sowing the seeds of, of of division and toxicity in the way we're handling some of these issues. In my perception, yeah. And so, is it from your perspective? Obviously, there is so much about the way that we worked during the pandemic, which is uh, fundamentally unsustainable. However, is it that? that is maybe one of the few things that leaders got bang on in this time. And we need to go back to that and not forget what it was like to be in the trenches with everyone else. You know, is is that fundamental to getting 
this right going forwards? Yeah, well, I guess to kind of push back on what you've said there, Ken, why was it fundamentally unsustainable? I think there was a lot that we can look at through that COVID period. Things that, you know, it was, it was horrible. It was horrendous. You know, people were dying. People were losing family members who were experiencing fear and loss of a kind that we probably in our generation never experienced. But there's a lot of that came out of COVID that I think we can reflect on, particularly in terms of the way that our working patterns that were that were good and were innovative and were creative. So I think there is stuff that we can focus on in from, from COVID and the development of hybrid working, flexible working, uh, greater trust, less of a reliance on a, on a retributive rules-based system in our workplaces, which I really want to focus on today because I do believe our rules-based system isn't fit for purpose in our organisations. Mm-hmm. And I think is it, it is it is seeding the, 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 the distress and the animosity that we see. So I think that, you know, I would say this is a, an opportunity for us to have a very significant rethink of the nature of of what it means to be in workplace but i think it is there, there was a there's a lot that we could be focusing on in terms of helping people to be the most brilliant version of themselves and that requires a rewire of the way that our managers managers our leaders lead and, and our people professionals deliver their services through policies processes and procedures so there's an opportunity here for a really big conversation about what it how do we get the best from our people and our organizations yeah, I mean, you know, what I was thinking of with COVID was really um, uh, the the pressure that was on people versus the the output that was expected. I mean, I completely agree. Obviously, there was a lot that happened in in that period, which has led to cultural changes that have been positive. It is interesting because it, you know leaders have been kind of more probably under the microscope since then. And maybe what people have been discovering is that um, a lot of the things that kind of went unquestioned in previous years seem to be no longer kind of acceptable, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, what what, what I speak to, you know, we're, we're all speaking to people. who we, We've all been through this, Karen. So we all know this. We've all experienced it. The organisations that I think are are flourishing now uh, post the pandemic or, or to have the potential to flourish are so the ones where our managers and leaders are listening to their people and listening to engage and really listening and engaging they're not they haven't gone back into their ivory towers or just with a with a with a hard focus on corporate strategy they're really engaging with their people mm. where our senior leaders managers are, are being authentic and honest and transparent and open and it felt that it very much felt like that during covid it felt like some of the um, the barriers and divisions between the different functions of our firms began to to break down, and they're starting to come back again. But actually, trying to break down some of those barriers by what what I I, I see as being very powerful that notion of humble leadership, which or, or, or transformational leadership, or really engaging with people, you know, sharing our vision, and just being honest about the challenges our organisation is facing and open up a really great big conversation with our people and engaging them in those conversations so they feel part of it. And I think those were very much the sort of the, the, the features of, of, of COVID and, and lockdowns, which whilst very difficult, were perhaps some of the more positive elements. And I think we can pick those up and continue to run with them in our organisations. And I see many organisations are caring. And I think those, again, will be the ones that are uh, you know, potentially going to be able to thrive and thrive and flourish in in the post pandemic world. Mm. Well, that's really encouraging to hear, and I'm going to follow up that quite encouraging message um, with with a case that is has kind of been a disaster. Really, mm. strikes are a very 
um, regular now part of today's working life, a, a really kind of key element in there. Are there more strikes than ever before at the moment or or maybe from the last 20 odd years? Or are we just hearing more about them because we are hearing more about the employee experience? There is more collective action. I mean, we've had a relative period of, of, of calm over the last 40 years. But I've got I've got three kids, Kieran, and they're at school learning the ABCs. So let's look at the ABCs. Austerity, Brexit, COVID, mm. disputes, enmity, fear, A, B, C, D, E, F. This is stuff which any organisation can recognise and can understand and see that actually, again, these collective disputes and this level of, 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 of collective action and strike action was, again, entirely predictable. And it's not universal. So the organisations that are not experiencing collective disputes of the kind that we've seen, and obviously some are being resolved, but then we're seeing others uh, in terms of, you know, the, particularly the junior doctor strike, which is flaring up now. Of course. The organisations which are getting this right could, could see the ABC of collective dispute resolution in their organisations. And they've been building a new social contract with their unions, uh, between unions, managers and their people teams. And they've been building collective agreements and partnership frameworks based on trust and dialogue and openness and a positive intention to resolve disputes constructively. And again, as I said at the very start of the podcast, I've seen better strategies for ordering paper clips than I have for dealing with this stuff. And I stand by that statement. It sounds harsh. I don't mean it to sound entirely pejorative, but for a great many organisations, they have slept walked into these collective disputes. Although anyone who's anyone watching the organisations and the challenges around the cost of living crisis, we, inflation, I could go further into the alphabet and bring inflation in here mm -hmm. as well. These things were predictable. And had there been better and more rigorous systems and processes for managers, for employers, for, for unions and others to sit down in a constructive, dignified, constructive way to resolve issues. I'm not going to say it would resolve all of the problems because these many of these are around paying and, and conditions and, and working conditions. But we'd at least have a system whereby all parties were engaging in positive and proactive dialogue. And as a mediator and a conflict management professional of, of, of 30 years, I have my head in my hands, Kieran when I watch how this stuff plays out, because I know the power of dialogue. I know the power of positive engagement. We all do. We all know it. We, we all, we, you know, it's not, I don't have special dispensation here. Yet we watch these issues playing out as though it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay for these disputes and, and, and challenges to turn into the level of vitriol and enmity that we're seeing um, playing out. It causes significant harm and damage to the organization, to the service users, and of course, to society at large. And it's a responsibility for employers and employees to resolve issues constructively. So I would call on any organisation, whether they're experiencing a collective dispute now or not, to act now to build that social uh, contract uh, in organisation and shape and develop a landscape for positive engagement between employees and employers in the future. So issues that are likely to happen, we all experience conflict in our organisations in, in one form or another, the inevitable conflicts that come down the line, we're well geared up and well set up for managing rather than, as I've said, sleepwalking into this collective dispute, which feels to me, um, you know, understandable, but entirely the wrong way of resolving problems in our workplaces in, in a modern, uh, in a modern society.
Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to explore that a tiny bit more. Um, obviously, this is you know an area where you are undoubtedly an expert. So what does good mediation actually look like? We we know what companies are getting so wrong, but how can they kind of reverse that and, and get on the right track? Yeah, it's a really, really important question. So, so mediation, it boils down to some really powerful principles, um, which I think are, are universally valuable. So the first one, I kind of mentioned it a lot to, to, today, um, Kieran, is about listening, but not listening to defend, as we hear on the Today Show on a, on a, in, in the mornings or on our, on our TV screens or from our, from, our, uh, um, from our Echo devices and so on. I'm talking about really listening to understand and listening to really engage what the other party is saying reframing is a critical bit of bit of our, our, our work as mediators so you know whenever a conflict occurs we always have our starting position i'm right you're wrong i should win you should lose that's a starting that's going to happen in any in any dispute but mediation gets beyond those positions and identifies what the underlying interests and what the underlying needs are that the parties bring to the table and actually when we start to unpack some of those interests and needs in a mediation process it starts to boil down that actually they have more in common than they have that separates them the need for a healthy workplace a need for a fair and a just environment for people to be the best versions of themselves so in a mediation process whilst we look at the the divergent factors within the negotiating position that the parties bring we also look at the commonality and the common ground between the parties and that creates a powerful space of what's called principled negotiation helping the parties to focus on the win-win outcome i call it um in simple terms moving from zonk to zopa zonk is the zone of negative conflict we're seeing that all over the place the zopa is the zone of possible agreement and the mediation process and dialogue more more widely helps the parties to move beyond that and to relax their rigid, often dogmatic positions that they might adopt, which can become very entrenched and and, and seemingly irreconcilable, and actually begin to soften those because we're identifying and working on those underlying interests, needs, and goals. And I guess the, the the other sort of defining characteristic that I think mediation brings into a negotiation is it's intrinsically future focused. So when we look backwards at the past in a mediation process, we look at the past, not from the position of who's culpable, who's to blame, who's at fault, which, of course, is the process of investigations or other or other processes of examining the past. But we look at it as a tool for gaining insight and learning that helps us to move forward. And what we often find in collective disputes or in any dispute is the parties become very entrenched and locked in to their negotiating position. And they've become very focused on the past, almost uh, to, to, to the extent that they're unable to think about what the future looks like. So the mediator role and the role that mediation plays in in negotiation and dispute resolution is it helps to move the parties from yesterday to tomorrow and slowly edging them forward and crafting an agreement as they move forward. And it's a very powerful process. It's the only dispute resolution process. We could look at litigation, we could look at arbitration, look at other forms of dispute resolution, collective action. No form of dispute resolution is as future focused and focused on the needs and so compassionate and engaging is the mediation process. And that's why over 90% of cases, according to the Centre for Effective Dispute Resolution, Karen, over 90, well, 92% of cases that go to mediation reach a successful resolution. So 
we would certainly be advising organizations to design mediation processes in and design resolution frameworks into their organizations, um, similar to what we've done in so many organizations, designing resolution frameworks and design out or remove the grievance and disciplinary and performance management systems and the and the kind of collective systems that if there are any that have been put in place that often um polarize the parties and treat the dispute as a sort of binary dispute rather than bringing people together there's a lot we can do to be creative and innovative in this space and uh, it's, it's really exciting to be part of it mm-hmm. and so finally my, my final question for you then if you had to pick out one thing one piece of advice to give to a listener who is perhaps worried about dissent within their own company what would be the one thing that you would tell them to do today rip up your grievance procedure very simple that grievance procedure is a canker it is destructive it's harmful it's hateful it's it's mean it's miserable it's nasty it's corrosive it offers no benefit no value there's no legal moral or statutory duty to have a grievance procedure and it may sit there and it may appear to be banal and benign it's not it's horrendous and it has a horrendous impact here and not just for the people who go through it but also for people who can see it, it becomes a threat. It becomes a sword of Damocles. I'm going to hand over your head. I'm going to go to HR and take out a grievance. Where it becomes something that becomes um, a a myth or something very fearful to be fearful of in our organisations. Oh, I I know a manager who was just escorted off the premises because someone took a grievance out against them. And um, so, you know, we'll have to say, be very careful as a manager of what I say and what I do. It spreads fear like the tendrils around our organisations. And once we've removed the grievance procedure, it forces us to have a conversation in our organisations about how will we build a rules-based system for resolving issues in the workplace. And when I sit down with people, teams and leaders and managers and ask them that question, they talk about early resolution, resolving issues closer to source. They talk about dialogue and trust. This is These are not my words, Kieran. These are their words. But when I look at the grievance procedure, those words don't exist. So rip up your grievance procedure, remove the canker from the organisation and put in its place the things that you know as a people professional work, trust, dialogue, diversity, understanding, empathy, compassion, design those in. And as I said, there's no legal or moral or statutory duty for you to have a grievance procedure. It doesn't exist. As long as you follow the ACAS code, which is give the right to the individual to to have a system for resolving their disputes, they have the right to be accompanied to any formal process and they have the right to appeal appeal an outcome. As long as you do those three basic things, there's an enormous amount of room for creativity uh, within our organisations. It's the one difference we can all make to helping us create a, a, a space where we can disagree better and don't we all need to be able to disagree a little bit better at the moment absolutely well it's been an absolute pleasure david thank you so much for your time okay and i've really really enjoyed it and thanks so much for inviting me to be part of the podcast well that was an awesome conversation with david i feel like i learned a lot hopefully you do too and we'll catch you again next week